Let's bow and pray once more as we prepare to hear God's Word. Please bow with me. Father, we're in need of help and we're in need of hope this morning from Your Word, and so we ask You to draw near to us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray for Your help, not merely to be those who hear Your Word, but to be doers of Your Word. Lord, by your grace and the power of your spirit that we would seek to obey your word, to rejoice in the gospel, Lord, that you would work in us and stir us up by way of reminder, cause our our eyes to see, to look at Jesus this morning. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word and ask that you would overcome any deficiencies of my own preaching, Lord, or my own understanding of this passage, that you would faithfully uh, proclaim through me the truth of your word. Lord, we pray you'd bring good fruit from our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is your response to the gospel? Everyone here has a response, every single person. What's your response to the gospel? Well, the word gospel, it means good news. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that Christians go on and on and on about. We sing about the gospel, we read about the gospel, we proclaim the gospel. As we finished the book of, of Galatians just recently, we, we thought and considered how the gospel is not merely the ABCs of the Christian life, but rather the A to Z of the Christian life. Not, not just the entryway into the Christian life, but indeed how the Christian life is sustained. Well, how is it that you respond to this good news about Jesus? Well, that word gospel was not originally a distinctly Christian term. In the Roman first century world, the word gospel was used, this good news, a message uh, used often to proclaim a, a victory on the battlefield. Roman armies would go out and fight a battle, and when they would score victory, it was determined, send back the message, send back the gospel, the good news to the cities, to the towns and villages that a victory has been won. There weren't 24-hour news cycles with cable news media or, or social media timelines to declare that. There were messengers, particularly one messenger who would run back and proclaim the gospel. That term gospel, good news, it also was used if there was a new Roman emperor that had been named, the proclamation of a new ruler was good news. It was a gospel, a message that was sent out. Uh, your king is here. Something that was meant to bring joy and confidence. That was an occasion to send out the gospel. Well, the New Testament book of Luke is a gospel, it's good news. It's good news about the life of Jesus Christ, his, his birth, which we're going to look at this morning, his perfect life where he perfectly honored God and obeyed him, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. This good news is meant to bring good joy as we consider the historical facts about Jesus recorded in the gospel of Luke. There's meant to be great joy. Your king is here. The victory has been accomplished at the cross. And at the empty tomb, it, it calls for a response from the listener, from the reader, the one long expected by God's people. King Jesus has come down to earth. The gospel, it is good news that demands a response. What is your response 
to the gospel? How do you respond to the good news about Jesus Christ? Well, this morning in Luke chapter 1, as we start off our study, we see two responses. And we should consider those responses and look at our own life and consider how is it that you respond to the good news about Jesus. Go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 38. We're going to be there this morning. Uh, we just heard Laura DeBrule read through that. Thank you, Laura, for reading that long passage for us. You did a great job and helpful for us to consider God's Word before we come and study this whole passage. So if you want to turn in the Pew Bible in front of you, you can take that Pew Bible, turn to page 855, 855. The best way to stay engaged in this sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word. And if you come this morning, you don't own a Bible, use that Bible this morning and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Talk to someone who brought you this morning or any of our pastors at the doors afterwards. We'd love to connect you with someone that could read the Bible with you. Now, we're kicking off a new sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, so certainly it's timely to go through that in December, but the plan is to kind of uh, go after this gospel on a semester basis. So we'll look at in, through the winter and late winter and spring, continue on the Gospel of Luke. We'll take some breaks and be in other books, but the plan is from start to finish to go through the Gospel of Luke. As we look at this first chapter this morning, I want to give you the main idea what I want you to see in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 38. Here's the main idea. The gospel is a message that exalts God's power and faithfulness in Christ. The gospel is a message that exalts God's power and faithfulness in Christ. Now, for context, let me share with you a little bit about Luke, the author of the gospel. Luke is a, a Greek name, so it's accepted that he is most likely a Gentile, which would make him the only Gentile author in Scripture, a great place to consider here the gospel. Uh, Luke wrote this gospel along with the accompanying volume of Acts, so volume one, Luke, volume two, the New Testament book of, of Acts. He's a major author of Scripture. The gospel of Luke is the longest New Testament book. Right, you tack on the second longest New Testament book, which is Acts, and put those together. And some research was done by our resident, Chris Salmonese, this week. He reported to me 27.5% of the New Testament written by Luke. So in other words, to know the New Testament is to know Luke and his writing. So we do well to give our attention to the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke himself was not an apostle. He was an associate of the apostle Paul, accompanying him on a good portion of his missionary journey. So he was able to see things with his own eyes, hear things from the Apostle Paul, who himself was an eyewitness to the risen Lord Jesus. He spent a lot of time with Paul. He was also highly educated. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul calls him a beloved physician. So he, he was a doctor. He also was a bit of a historian. Here in this gospel, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that he operated as a historian, compiling a narrative from eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. So he interviewed apostles. It's believed that he likely interviewed Mary, mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. There's so many details in the gospel of Luke, making it the most complete in terms of detail of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the first four verses of Luke's gospel was referred to as the prologue, and in this brief section, we find some important 
context for the book. So let me take these first four verses to give us context before we get into the meat of the sermon. First off, we see who Luke is writing to in verse 3. The gospel is addressed to Theophilus. This name means one who loves God. Theophilus, likely referring to a specific person here. I think that's most likely who's being referenced here, a specific man, though we don't know exactly who he is. We get some clues. We see here that the most excellent Theophilus, leading some scholars to suggest he was a noble man, perhaps a ranking Roman official. Some suggest he might be a high priest in the nation of Israel. He seems to be a man of some sort of nobility. And Theophilus also seems to already have been a Christian when this letter was written, because we see at the end of verse 4 that he has been taught, in, in the past tense, taught the gospel, believed it. And here this letter is written to him to tell him more. Now, though the letters initially addressed to him, throughout the letter we'll see here, or throughout this book rather, we'll see uh, that it's meant for you and I to read. It's meant for broad distribution and account of Jesus Christ of Nazareth for those to read and to consider and to believe. We see Luke's aim here at the end of verse 3, his purpose in writing this book. He states that he set out here to write an orderly account. Now, there's a number of ways this is orderly, but mainly it's orderly and that it's in chronological order. It's very easy to read. So we're going to start off this morning with the conception of Jesus, and the order is just going to take us all the way to the resurrection of Jesus at the end. Orderly also, and that Luke mainly covers kind of two main questions. Who is Jesus, and what did he do? Very orderly and understanding plainly and clearly facts about Jesus Christ. Also, we see here why he wrote in verse 4, his purpose statement, that you may have certainty. Purpose statement, why he's writing. It's not just fun facts about Jesus. It's not merely for you to have some sort of education about Jesus, but ultimately for you to believe in Jesus. His purpose is to provide the reader with certainty about who Jesus is and what he truly accomplished. Now, for those who already believe in Jesus, which is most of this room, most of this room is members of our church who've already, by God's grace, put their faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized upon that profession of faith. For those who already believe in Jesus, the purpose for you and I for this book is to strengthen our faith. It's to keep growing in confidence or certainty about who God is for us in Jesus, how much He loves us in Jesus, how much we can trust Jesus, how worthy he is of our worship, of all of our lives. So please don't come to this book. If you've been a Christian for a number of years and think, yeah, I mean, like the book of Revelation might be some things I struggle with and I need to learn more about books like that. But Luke, check, got it. Been listening to this since I was five. If that's your attitude, here's a moment right now to humble yourself and say, Lord, keep me from being so familiar with this passage that I'm not encouraged through this passage, about my faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be regularly guided and directed to look to Jesus. He is the object of our faith. If we want to grow as Christians, we need to look to Him more and more. You know, we need this help. If we're honest, we need this help regularly to be led away from looking in the mirror that we would look up. To Jesus and be encouraged in our faith. 
For those who, who do not yet believe, this book is written to you as well. The goal of this gospel is that you might travel the path that so many have before you of learning who Jesus is, of coming to love him and to know him, to know forgiveness of sins found through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer. We prayed earlier. It's my prayer that if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I pray that one day you'll be able to look back and remember when you started the Gospel of Luke at Oakhurst Baptist Church in December of 2023 and that God used that to work in your life. Whether you're here with your parents this morning or whether you came with a friend, God brought you here for a reason. And our prayer is that God uses what we see here in this book to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, as we jump into this book this morning, as we consider looking at Jesus, I want us to consider two responses to the gospel. I started off asking the question, how do you respond to the gospel? What is your response? And we find two responses in this passage. The first response in verses 5 through 25, hesitant doubt. That's the first response we see in the gospel of Luke, hesitant doubt. The second response we'll see in verses 26 through 38 submissive faith, either hesitant doubt or submissive faith. Let's consider first in verses 5 to 25, hesitant doubt. Now Luke begins his gospel with the beginning of John the Baptist, my favorite Baptist. So we can look here at John the Baptist. So he actually starts not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist, who plays a very important role in the gospel being revealed. And we see first that his birth was no ordinary birth. First, we see he was conceived by a barren woman, meaning a woman who was physically incapable of getting pregnant. Now, we've seen this in Scripture before in our study of of Genesis, and here we see a picture of Elizabeth, and we get the detail in verse 7 that John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were old, they were advanced in years, and they had no child, though they were old, because, sadly, Elizabeth was barren. That's a difficult uh, place to be in. It's it's a place of of suffering. We see our physical bodies breaking down here on earth as a result of the fall, the curse of sin. And Luke, he's a historian who throws in great details. He throws in, I love how he throws in these details. He wants to let it be known very quickly that this situation and suffering that Elizabeth and Zechariah were going through was not because of their sin. He, He points here that they were righteous, They both were of the line of Aaron, the line of priests. They were both righteous before God. They both walked blamelessly in obedience to God. He wanted them to know, wants the reader to know, it's not because of their suffering of sin. They're suffering simply by living in a fallen world. Now, John's was no ordinary birth because barren women don't get pregnant. That doesn't happen naturally. It's not humanly possible. It's only possible with God. Second, we see something else extraordinary, an angel foretelling his birth, right? So this wasn't just like uh, an ancient gender reveal, right? She, She wasn't expecting, in other words, Zechariah wasn't expecting to hear that his wife was pregnant. He had no idea what was going to happen. An angel shows up to foretell his birth. And that's not because simply the good news was, hey, Zechariah, guess what? You and Elizabeth are finally going to have a baby. That was wonderful news. But God had something much greater in store 
for what was going to happen. Now, Zechariah was a priest, and the angel Gabriel appeared to him while he was serving his priestly duty in the temple. We read in verses 8 and 9 of, of God's sovereign plan in all of this. So while Zechariah's division was on duty in the temple, read this detail, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. Now, in my study this week, I read some background on this, that every day when a division was on uh, serving there at the temple, every day two priests were chosen by lot, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, to enter the holy place of the temple and to offer incense. Two priests were chosen likely out of about a thousand. All right, so to have that lot chosen, two out of a thousand. And I also learned that many priests never got chosen. And all their service never got this opportunity to go into the most holy place and to burn incense and to pray. And once you were chosen, that was it. You could not enter again. So this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is what God sovereignly arranged for redemptive history to unfold. Now, his role as a priest was to offer incense to the Lord, and the main prayer there was for the salvation of Israel. The, the scene is the people of God outside praying, waiting to see the smoke of incense rising up. The priest on the inside, bowing down after lighting incense, praying, confessing the sins of the nation, and praying for God to send the Messiah for the salvation of Israel. People on the outside waiting to see the smoke, and when they saw the smoke, they would fall to their knees and pray and kind of join in the chorus of prayers of incense being lifted up to God. That's the moment when the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appeared to Zechariah with good news. And you may wonder, if this was good news, why was Zechariah terrified? Well, why did the angel have to say, do not be afraid? Well, we often have these cartoonish pictures of angels, almost like cute puppy dogs appearing. That's not what we see in Scripture. When an angel appears, people respond with fear. Why is Zechariah scared? Well, you would be too if you saw an angel. Angels, real spiritual beings from heaven, from the spiritual realm, in the presence of the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God, overwhelming for any fallen human being to see and to experience. The response when a fallen person comes into contact with a heavenly being is fear. But Gabriel makes it clear, don't be afraid. He reassures him there is good news. Now, the good news, again, is not primarily that you're going to have a son. That's amazing news. But the good news is who the son will be and what this son will do. Look at verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. Why not? Well, after all, he was a Baptist. Just kidding. Just kidding. This was a vow from the Old Testament book of Numbers. It was a Nazarite vow. and Something we see with Samson and Samuel. And effectively, someone being set apart for a special work of God. So this is saying he's going to be in the spirit of Samuel. Set apart for a special work that God has determined. And then next we read, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Yes, you read that correctly. John was filled with the Spirit of God as a person inside the womb of his mother, meaning his whole life he knew God. Now, in the Old Covenant, God would send his Spirit upon certain individuals 
at certain times for very specific tasks for his glory. So what we see here, a specific individual, John the Baptist, he's a person in the womb, by the way. That's, that's, again, it's why we stand against abortion as Christians. We see here very plainly what's in the womb, living human being. And God was pleased to save John the Baptist in the womb, not yet born. Filled with the Holy Spirit because he was being set apart and called for this holy task of preparing the way for Jesus. Look at what John would do in verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepare. Now imagine Zechariah here. First off, terrifying. You just saw an angel. What is going on? Next, wait a minute, my wife is going to conceive? I mean, that's, that's crazy enough news to hear. But then we hear all these things. He's going to be great, and here's what he's going to do. And this language that's being used here, it's referring back to Old Testament prophecy. This would be no ordinary child. He would be one that the prophets anticipated and talked about and looked forward to. The last Old Testament prophet, so the last book you see in the Old Testament, Malachi. And Malachi was a prophet who called Israel to turn to God, to repent. And if you write this down, you can look at this passage later, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi prophesied that one day God would send the Messiah, the greatest prophet of all. But first, God would send a forerunner. He says there in Malachi 4, 5 and 6. A forerunner like the Old Testament prophet Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. This was good news. The good news was not merely, hey, you and Elizabeth, you're going to get a son. The good news is the Messiah is coming. The long-awaited king, he is coming. Get ready. Your son, John, will prepare the way for him. Anticipation, fulfillment, joy. Something that Israel had been waiting for. Something that Zechariah had just been praying for there in the temple. Well, how did he respond to this good news? Well, he didn't believe. He didn't respond to the good news with encouragement or comfort, but rather with doubt. And his doubt is voiced in the form of a question. Verse 18, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. We know this is not just an innocent question and doubt because the angel Gabriel then pronounces a curse on him for his unbelief in verse 20. Because Zechariah did not believe the good news, he would be silent. And think about this, heard the good news, couldn't talk and tell others about this good news. Not until after John was born, at least. After all, what does unbelief really have to say anyways? The irony here, he heard the good news. He couldn't go and tell it. And there's a lesson for us here. Again, Zechariah was righteous, feared the Lord. He was a believer. He had a moment of doubt here. He heard the good news. And I think the call for us as Christians is that good news is to be believed. It's to be heard, believed, trusted. It's not what we see with Zechariah. Zechariah was not moved by the good news that the Messiah was coming. And I wonder how it is that you respond, Christian, 
to the gospel. Christmas looks back on that moment in history when Jesus, the Messiah, was born. Are you still moved by that good news? Are you still encouraged by that good news? Do you still find comfort that God sent His eternal Son down to earth, all because He loved you, all because He came to rescue you and to save you from your sin? Are you moved by the good news that Jesus died on the cross? Are you moved by the good news that on the third day God raised Him from the dead? Are you moved by the good news that Jesus, our risen Savior, is reigning this morning? Are you moved by the good news that He indeed is coming back one day? Or are you so caught up in the news of your own life, your own busy, anxious life, that that good news is not moving you anymore? Well, I've got good news for you. Sunday morning, it's a time and a chance for a new beginning. We meet on the morning that Jesus got up from the dead, and we come in every Sunday morning, and we rehearse the gospel, and we remind one another of the truth of the gospel. We minister to one another by pointing each other to Christ and to His return, and every Sunday morning is an opportunity to be moved by the power of the gospel, to be moved by this good news, to rejoice in who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. We're also to be moved that God is faithful. We need that reminder. Simple truth. How quick are we to forget it? God is always true to His Word. He's always faithful. That's what we see in verse 24. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. Promise kept. God is faithful. He always keeps His promises. His Word never fails. He always keeps His promises. Sometimes, We state our intentions and forget what we even set out to do a few days ago. God gives His promise. He never forgets. He always remembers His covenant. He always keeps His Word. We can be encouraged. We can be comforted by the truth of God's Word. A barren woman, old in age, conceiving a child, not something possible with human power, not something possible with human wisdom. This was the power of God, and His power and love is seen and demonstrated in His faithfulness to His promises. In other words, the gospel exalts God's power and His faithfulness in Christ. And our response to that should be to rejoice and to turn to Him and to trust Him. Well, John the Baptist was a forerunner, paving the way for God's greatest promise, Jesus. In this next section, an unmarried virgin conceives. So first, a barren woman conceives. Now something even more baffling, a virgin conceives. And here we find a second response to the good news in verses 26 through 38, submissive faith. It's the call of every Christian, this response to the good news submissive faith. We see in verse 26, when Elizabeth had been pregnant for six months, the angel Gabriel appears again, but this time God sent Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth was an obscure, tiny place about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem. I read this week, it's probably about 400 people at that time. It didn't have a good reputation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth is what was said about that Place. So it wasn't a place where like uh, th- these mighty people who were really wise and really well-educated who were there and doing great things that God chose, uh, a competent, capable person there that seemed like a likely candidate 
for this long-awaited promise of the Messiah. We see rather that He shows up here to deliver a message, Gabriel does, to, to Mary, a, a virgin, so an, an unmarried young woman, sexually pure, uh, probably at that time scholars estimate between the ages of 13 to 16. That was common in, in that time period to be married about that age and given in marriage. So this should be an encouragement to anyone here, in the room, particularly to our, our young teenage girls. 13 through 16, God gave this beautiful blessing, one of the greatest blessings that anyone's ever experienced to conceive Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see a model response from this young girl, not from the priest, not from the one chosen to go in the high place, but from this young girl in Nazareth. Now, for an angel to appear to a priest in the temple, I mean, okay, that seems like a a likely setting. If that's going to happen, something supernatural like that, okay, that, that seems like a fitting place. But Nazareth to a young teenage betrothed girl. This betrothal period, uh, by the way, it was a Jewish uh, betrothal. So the marriage had already been set, but not yet fully united. So, so kind of like an engagement here, but even more than an engagement, that it was legally binding at that time. Uh, the marriage was sure and set to happen. It'd be about a one-year betrothal period, but they had not yet come together as husband and wife. And here shows up this angel and Mary, same response, scared and confused. And the assurance that Gabriel brought her was that the Lord is with you and for you. Verse 28, he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. God's calling comes with his presence. Before she received this calling from God, she received assurance, the Lord is with you. He also assures her the Lord is for you. He tells her in verse 30, you have found favor with God. Now, favor, here this Greek word is the same word we use for grace. You've found grace with God. After all, what is grace? God's unmerited what? Favor. You've found grace with God. Notice that Gabriel did not say that Mary herself was full of grace. He didn't say that Mary could somehow dispense grace to others. Rather, she was a recipient of of God's unmerited favor and grace. There was nothing special about her. What was special was the grace of God and the favor of God and the specific blessing of conceiving the Son of God. God chose her, in other words, by His grace alone. The Lord is with you. The Lord is for you. You have His favor. And in verses 31 and 32, we see the main message of the good news that Gabriel delivered, starting in verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Again, something that is not humanly possible. Virgins do not conceive children. Now, she wouldn't have had the time to process that right in the moment because the angel had much more to say. He went right on to the name of this baby boy given by God. He was to be named Jesus, a Hebrew name, Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves. His name is going to be Jehovah or the Lord saves. His name revealed what he came to do. Jesus came down to earth to save, to die on the cross, to redeem and to rescue and to save people from God's righteous judgment, to save us from our sin. He came and paved the way for you to experience forgiveness if indeed you would put your trust 
in Jesus. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, extending forgiveness and new life and salvation and free righteousness to all who would repent and believe in Him. His name is great. Proclaiming what we see in verse 32, He will be great. His greatness seen and Him willingly laying His life down to die on the cross. His greatness seen in conquering death and on the third day, resurrecting from the dead. Gabriel continues on, He will be a son and He will be a king. The titles we see here, verse 32, Son of the Most High. And then down in verse 35, the Son of God. In other words, there's no one greater than Jesus. He is the Son of God. Both of these titles fulfill Psalm chapter 2. Jesus is the Son. In other words, the Son, what it means, God's anointed one who will rule over God's people. That's what Psalm 2 looks forward to. The good news, Jesus is that Son. Jesus is God's anointed Messiah. And this is speaking of not like sonship like I have with my dad that I'm his son. This is speaking of divine sonship, the divine sonship of Jesus, telling us that Jesus didn't become the Son of God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's always existed, second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He was always God. When he came down to earth, he became something he was not, a man, truly God, truly Man, the only one qualified to be a substitute, to stand in our place as a payment for sin. Not an ordinary man, God. God taking on a human body. And he came down to lay that body down to pay for your sin, if indeed you would trust in him. This great son came to reign as a king, a king in the line of David. Look at verse 32. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. One of the great promises of the Old Testament that you need to know, God's covenant promise to David, the Davidic covenant. You can write this down. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. And the promise, very simply to King David, is that God would establish David's throne and his kingdom forever. There would be a king that would come to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem forever. Now Luke, the historian, already threw in the detail back in verse 27, that Jesus came from the line of David. That Joseph, his earthly father, is from the house of David, and therefore Jesus was grafted into that in his earthly family. But think about it. How could a king rule forever? Kings die. The history of the the throne in Israel was not a pretty scene. There were some good and righteous kings, but there were some terrible kings who did not love the Lord and disobeyed him. So how could they look forward to a good king, a righteous king, who would rule in righteousness, but not only rule in righteousness, but rule and reign forever? Well, the, prob- the, the promise was for God himself to come. Jesus, the Son of God, the only one who could fulfill the promise of a forever king. Now, the announcement in verse 31 and 32, this is the greatest announcement ever made on earth. And the next great announcement is the second coming of Jesus when he returns, when the trumpet sounds. We look forward to that announcement that surely will come and hopefully one day soon. 
But the greatest announcement that's come, your king is here. Here's Jesus. God has brought salvation through his son, Jesus. You see, the good news about Jesus, Gabriel, the messenger angel, announced the gospel, the king is here. The one that you were promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the one that would come and crush the head of the serpent. He's here. He's arrived. His name is, is Jesus, the one who would reign forever, the Son of God. He's here, and he's coming down to earth in the form of a tiny little baby who's going to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. His name is Jesus, and he has come to bring salvation, the salvation of God that Israel has been waiting for. And how does Mary respond to this good news? Well, initially, with a question, look at verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? You might read that and think, okay, Dave, you said submissive faith. Like, this sounds a little bit like Zechariah. I think this is different. I don't think this is like Zechariah. Let me explain. Now, in the Scriptures, God had already caused barren women to conceive. We saw a few in the book of Genesis in our time going through the book of Genesis. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel in Genesis alone. You can also see Hannah, uh, barren, conceived of the Lord. Now, Zechariah, as a priest, would know how Isaac came about. Conceived by a barren woman. God caused Sarah to conceive. That's how Israel came to exist in the first place. And Zechariah would have affirmed that. He would have known that. And yet he asked back in 18, how shall I know this? Now, Mary isn't asking how can she know this, but she asks here, how will this be? She's asking, how is this going to happen? A pretty plain, common question. Barren women had conceived in Scripture, but never before had a virgin conceived in Scripture, and never since. And never again will a virgin conceive. This is the one time in human history. It'll never happen again. Now, her initial response, I don't think this is unbelief like Zechariah. She understands the angel to say she'll conceive now before she's fully united to Joseph, her husband. And a natural question is, how is that going to work? And in verse 35, Gabriel tells her how this will work. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. How would this Son be born? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by Mary's power, not by Joseph's power, not by human power, but by the power of God and His Holy Spirit. To make his point in verse 36, he points to her relative, Elizabeth, and says, oh, by the way, she's pregnant. Your old barren relative, she's pregnant. Barrenness didn't get in the way of God's promise to her, and your virginity is not going to get in the way of God's promise to you. Nothing can stop God's plan and His power. The highlight of this passage, the reason that no one can stop God's plan, the reason that God's Word never fails, verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, incarnate by the Holy Ghost, and made a man only possible by the Spirit of God. The one who made it possible for a virgin to conceive by this same power of the Holy Spirit would make possible the salvation of all nations. The gospel, the movement of Christianity beginning here, it's always been empowered by the Holy Spirit. From virgin conception to death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
all accomplished by the Spirit and the power of God. In other words, this same Spirit that brought about the conception of Jesus in the womb of a virgin is the Spirit that rose Christ from the dead. Those who put their faith in Jesus can know for certain that nothing is impossible with God. I love that. It's important truth. Church member, I trust you love that. Let's take a moment and consider how often do we struggle to believe that? We will amen that, and rightly so, because we truly believe it. But we struggle in the flesh to live in light of the truth of this verse. Far too often we find ourselves and our minds and our hearts questioning God's power, questioning His his faithfulness. Some of you are struggling to believe this morning that God loves you. You're struggling and wrestling with sin that you've already repented of. You're dealing with shame that isn't yours to bear, that you've already cast upon Jesus Christ and been forgiven of, and you're struggling to walk in light of God's love and forgiveness, which is questioning if it's possible for God to forgive you. Some of you have hard family situations that you just experienced at Thanksgiving that you're gearing back up for here in a few more weeks at Christmas, and they feel impossible sometimes for you to overcome. You have some family members that you you may think in your mind, you may believe God's able to save them, but you may think in your mind God's not going to save them. I do that. How sinful of us to think that some are better candidates for salvation than others. That's looking to people and not to our God who reigns and who saves. Christian, I wonder where you struggle to trust God's power and faithfulness. I wonder where you doubt God's power. What do you think is too impossible for God? That temptation that you struggle with, that it's too impossible for God to take that away or give you victory in it. The salvation of that family member who seems too far gone. Restoring a a, a broken relationship. Does that seem too impossible for God to do? Have you grown weary of praying and asking God to deliver and to help? Have disappointments in life or pain in life led you to grow cynical about what God may do in the future? This story about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's here to encourage us. It's here to call us to live in light of what is true, of what is certain, that nothing can stop God's plans. He's shown us that in Jesus. And what a kindness to show us that in the conception of Jesus and the conception of John the Baptist as we looked at this morning. Brothers and sisters, as we make our way through this book, don't be so familiar with the story of Christmas that your faith isn't encouraged by the wonders of Christmas. This same God who brought forth his son from a virgin, this same God who brought his son back from the dead is the God who is with you, the God who is for you in Jesus, the spirit of whom has dwelled in you from the moment that you first believed. Well, how should you respond? Verse 38, we'll close our time out with this. Thankfully, verse 18 we look back, how will this be? That's verse 18. Mary's response there, that's not her final response to the good news of how will this be. We read her final response in verse 38. Not how will this be, let it be. That's submissive faith. Let it be to me according to your word. Words of submissive faith, Mary 
trusted God's word. She submitted in faith to God's promises. This response is how all Christians responded when you first believed. Let it be. God, your plan and your will in my life. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. Let it be. Repent and believe. And it's the ongoing cry of the heart of a Christian. Let it be. Lord, have your way in me. Bring your purposes and your plan to bear on my life. Cause me to walk according to your will. Let it be. God's power and his faithfulness is ultimately seen in Jesus. And you will either respond to Jesus with hesitant doubt or in faithful submission. The gospel requires a response. How have you responded? What is your response this morning? If you're not sure, please don't leave here without talking to somebody. You could talk to more about what it would mean to trust in Jesus if you've never done that. And for those who are sure, may this book bring certainty continually to our faith that all who put their faith in Jesus have been humbled to the place in our hearts to declare by faith, let it be. Let's bow and pray. Lord, we need the reminder that your word never fails. We need the reminder of the power of your promise and your faithfulness to us and your son, Jesus. We thank you for how you've given us that reminder in the gospel of Luke. And we pray for the help of your spirit now. We pray you take the truth we've heard and impress it upon our heart. As we come now to celebrate new life and baptism, for all this morning who've received that new life, may we remember our baptism and be encouraged and comforted in our faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.